Okay. Now that we're at Acts 19, I'll tell you what, before we start feeding on the Word today, let me uh, further warm up your capacity for abstract thinking. And I want to give you... Okay, good. Three questions that will make you think. Okay? Question here. What do you get when you cross elephants with kangaroos? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Lots of large holes in Australia. Uh, what kind of food do race horses eat? Lots of large holes over Australia. No, that's a different, that's a different one. That's a mistake. You get fast food, right? Race horses eat fast food. Uh, final question, hold your applause. What kind of leopards have red spots all over their bodies? That would be leopards with chicken pox. Okay, let's uh, read our passage. I thought I'd try something different, you know. Right back to plan A next week. Okay. Yeah, we finally arrived in chapter 19, and we pick up our story here. It happened that while Apollos, we studied Apollos in Ephesus and went across the Aegean to Greece last week. It happened that while Apollos was at the city of Corinth in southern Greece, that Paul, who had begun his third missionary journey, passed through the upper country, the uh, faster but the harder road from central Turkey to uh, western Turkey, and came to Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, and found some disciples, mathetes, learners there. These disciples, as it turned out, are somewhat like Apollos was. Go back to verse 25. They'd been instructed in the way of the Lord's stand, but they didn't know all the details about Jesus. So Paul finds these disciples in a kind of a special, unique group of people uh, there in Ephesus. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. We don't know what you're talking about. So he says a second thing, ask him a second question. Uh, into what then were you baptized? What are you identified with? If you're not identified with the Christian church and baptism in Jesus' name, and they said, John the Baptist's baptism. I call that phase one of John Baptist, John the Baptist ministry. So Paul said, you know what, let me fill you in. And I'm sure he went into more detail here. Verse four is what you call literary compression. Luke is reducing a lot of content down into one basic statement. But Paul basically brings them up to date. He says, hey, John the Baptist came baptizing with the baptism of repentance telling the people who were listening to him preach to believe in him, capital H, Jesus, the Messiah, who was coming after him, John the Baptist, that is, Jesus of Nazareth. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to realize the Bible connects faith with salvation. I mean, the Bible connects faith with you having your sins forgiven and you being able to go to heaven when you die, and even more importantly, with me getting my sins forgiven and me getting to go to heaven when I die. Genesis 15.6, Abraham believed God and his promises about Messiah, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. Romans 4.5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him, Christ who justifies the ungodly, his faith, the ungodly person's faith, is reckoned as righteousness. 
Ephesians 2, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, there's nothing for us to brag about. John 20, verse 30 and 31, many other signs Jesus also performed that are not written in this gospel, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Lamb of God who died for our sins and rose again. And that believing in Jesus as the Christ, you'd have life in his name. And of course, John 3.16, no less than Martin Luther said this was the gospel and a whole verse, Jane. And Martin Luther is very famous and uh, deservedly so in church history. Uh, for God the Father, as the author of the plan of salvation, loved the world. You know about the world, especially in the Gospel of John, it's that domain of sin and rebellion against God. God the Father is the author of the plan, loved the world full of sinful people like Andrew Bowers and Mike Palavik and Brad McCoy so much that he gave his, doesn't say only begotten son, says monogonesh, unique, only one of its kind. The one visible member of the Trinity is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the active agent of salvation. Because he's incarnated as human flesh, dies to pay for our sins and rises again. God the Father is the author, loved the world full of rebellious, sinful people, estranged from him spiritually so much he gave his son, his unique son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So the Bible makes it very clear that faith is connected with forgiveness of sins, salvation, uh, everlasting life. But what exactly does that kind of faith look like? We're going to go from fuzzy to focus today because we're going to get, what a privilege, Solomon. You're going to get to get into a biblical time machine and go from 2016 in Oklahoma to 53 A.D., probably August or September of 53 A.D. in what we call Turkey today. Um, I always love a country named Turkey, you know. Wish they had... Uh, you know, to me, I'd rather have some tr- countries like pork chops or like uh, chicken, you know, hot dogs. But there's not any countries like that. But we have a country called Turkey. So we're going to go back to 53 A.D., go to what we would call today Turkey. And we're going to see the Apostle Paul, no less, help a small, very unique group of people move from fuzzy to focused in regard to their saving faith. And I, my hope for this is that as we study this passage um, Daryl and I and Pam and Derek and Savannah will be able to think more clearly and deeply about what saving faith is uh, and reflect more deeply on the object of our faith and share and live for the object of our faith, our Lord Jesus Christ, even more so. So let's, let's go to prayer. Lord, it is our great privilege to gather and worship uh, in song like we've just done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now to open your word and uh, to ask that your Holy Spirit would illumine this text that he's inspired so that we might understand it as believer priests believe it and it would move from our heads to our hearts and inform our convictions and our desires and our priorities and our decisions as we think about the uniqueness of the person of Jesus Christ and the greatness of him as our Savior. Uh, we pray, Father, this morning for uh, needs that aren't mentioned. We all bring our our uh, hurts and our pains and our questions and our concerns uh, with us every time we enter this building. And we believe that you're concerned about all of those things and that as we seek and submit to you, you will li- lead us and, and guide us 
whether we're having uh, financial or occupational stress or relational stress or a health issue in crisis or just concerned about the direction of our country, whatever it might be. We uh, don't want to worship our worries this morning, but we lift our worries and our concerns and our hearts and our souls to you as uh, our creator and sustainer and our savior. And we pray, Lord, in a special way that you might uh, enable and direct and protect those who physically protect and serve us, whether they're in the active military all over the world or whether they're our local heroes, our firefighters and our peace officers. We pray for all of those folks and their families and especially for those who are believers in Christ that you might keep their testimonies strong and be glorified in what they do and how they do it. Uh, We thank you again, Lord, for this opportunity to get together and to worship you by meditating deeply on your word. We pray you be glorified in the process and the product of that. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Yeah, we're going to see in verse 1 an introduction to Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Now, we're in what we call the third missionary journey. First, we're going to see an introduction to Paul's three years in Ephesus. And Brandon, what we call the third missionary journey of Paul, there are one, two, three in the book of Acts, is really Paul going to Ephesus, staying for three years, revisiting uh, the churches in Greece, and then going back home. Uh, so that's what we're going to see. He's going to spend three years here, but this is the first couple of days, first couple of weeks in Ephesus. And then we're going to see uh, Paul asking some unique believers some distinct diagnostic questions, too, exactly. And then he's going to help them move from fuzzy to focused in the New Testament faith. And then we're going to see them proclaiming the reality of their faith through water baptism. So let's go to the next slide there, David. Uh, look at verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, he'd been in Ephesus, and last week he went across the Aegean uh, to uh, Corinth. Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus, found the disciples. What's all that mean? Well, Paul has started his missionary journey as he starts all of them at Antioch Bible Fellowship. Okay, Not Antioch uh, Baptist Church. It wasn't Antioch Methodist Church. It was definitely Antioch Bible Fellowship. And we left him in Galatia last time while we talked about Apollos, who was in Ephesus and went across to Corinth. But now Paul has come across the more difficult but the more direct route from the interior to Ephesus, which was a large city. Uh, last week I said uh, 250,000, but I was thinking of Corinth. Ephesus was 500,000, 500,000 people, half a million people, one of the largest cities in the uh, Roman world, and a seacoast at the time. Now, over the last couple thousand years, silt has filled in that river uh, that extended about half a mile to Ephesus, so it's not on the coast anymore. Things change. But, yeah, so the point is we're back in Ephesus where a lot of great things are going to happen. And notice, Sue, it says he found some disciples there. Now, the word disciple in the original is mathetes. And so, you know, uh, Brant is a, is a disciple in the sense that the word disciple just means student. So he's a hardworking engineering student, right, at the college level. But that term comes to uh, mean in uh, especially Jewish circles, uh, it means somebody who's following someone else who's learning how to emulate the way they think and the way they live. And, of course, in the ultimate sense, Solomon is a believer. You need to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've got two world-class parents that are excellent role models and examples, but ultimately we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet that term can be used in a couple of different ways. And here we're talking about a unique 
small group of disciples. Okay. Now let's look at verses uh, two and three, and we'll see Paul asked these questions. He spoke some diagnostic questions. Okay. Yeah. Perfect, dude. Thank you. So he says to them, and by the way, let me back up a little bit. And he asks them these strange questions, Tom. Like he doesn't ask anybody else questions like this. And so let me kind of read between the lines. I think what's happening here is Paul meets these people in verse 1, just at his second or third day in the city of Ephesus. And he hears them talking about the Messiah, the Messiah, the Messiah. And that sounds good to him. Uh, but the problem is their appearance and their demeanor looked a lot more like strict, legalistic, observant Jews, kind of what Paul was before he got saved, than your average Messianic Christian in that period. And they were totally distinct from the little local church in Ephesus. Either they didn't know about it at all, or they were too spiritual to hang out with those folks. And they did their own, today we call it home church, they did their own home synagogue on Saturdays. So those are the kind of vibes he's picking up. So he senses they're not fully clued in. And that brings us to verse two and verses 2 and 3, where he asks these folks these two diagnostic, theologically diagnostic questions. Uh, he says, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit when you first believed? And I said, we don't know what you're talking about, basically. And, and what he's saying is, when you first came to faith in Messiah, did you believe in the provided Savior, Jesus Christ, as preached by the apostles? And then, having done that, powered by the Holy Spirit, are you serving and associating with the body of Christ? Or, as I'm pretty sure, was and is your faith in the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Bible, and you're still waiting to meet him personally and find out specifically who he is and exactly how his mission worked out. And they say, we don't know what you're talking about. So they're basically saying, uh, you know, we're still Old Testament believers. We don't know anything specifically about Jesus of Nazareth. You know, John the Baptist had two phases to his ministry. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you read about the first phase. We'll look at a statement there in a minute where he's saying, hey, I'm a prophet. There hasn't been a, a speaking prophet in Israel for 400 years since Malachi, but I'm just the forerunner of the Messiah. He's on the ground. He's about to make himself known. That's phase one. Then Jesus comes to John. John connects the dots. Jesus says, baptize me. I want to identify with what you're doing as the forerunner of Messiah. And what does John the Baptist say when Jesus says, baptize me? What does he say, Blanche? I'm not worthy to baptize you. You'll be baptizing me. But Jesus says, let's just do it to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus is baptized by John. The Father and the Spirit confirm this is the Messiah. There's no doubt about it. John sees it, knows it. This moves us to phase two of John the Baptist's ministry. Uh, now what happens, and what does Jesus do immediately after he's baptized? What's the next big thing in the, in the life of Christ? Goes to the wilderness, fast for 40 days, is tempted. Then after that, he comes back to where John is baptizing. And you won't read about that in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. You read about that in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And that's phase two of John's ministry. And what does John do when he sees Jesus? That's the Lamb of God, guys. John still got disciples hearing him preach. But as soon as Jesus reveals himself and comes back from the temptation, John is all about, go to Jesus, go to Jesus, go to Jesus. So this group of guys has only known about the preaching of John through phase one. They don't know that John interacted with Jesus. John is now specifically talking about Jesus. 
Yeah, they don't know what Paul's talking about when he's saying, hey, you know, kind of, uh, what, what's the deal? That leads us to the second question uh, in verse, verse 3, second diagnostic question. If you're not connected with the body of Christ and you don't know anything specifically about Jesus the Savior, uh, who or what are you connected with? And they said, uh, Paul says, um, uh, into, then what were you baptized? What, what are you identified with? What you started in your uh, walk of faith in the Messiah? And they said, well, all we know about is John's baptism, phase one. Okay. Now, by the way, I, I don't say this very often, but you know, many years ago, Harold Kasparite brought me a pamphlet because somebody had gone door to door to all the uh, Duncan downtown businesses, uh, saying that everybody should be a Baptist. Because John the Baptist was Baptist. Okay? And uh, I'd kind of made jokes about that for years, and I, I knew some people thought that way, but I thought it'd be hard to find it in printing. So he actually brought this thing to me. And the thing about it is, John wasn't a Baptist. John was a Jew. John was the last Old Testament prophet, okay? And Jesus says he's the greatest prophet because he's closest to the Messiah. But in fact, the Greek text doesn't say John the Baptist like he's a Southern Baptist or a Northern Baptist or an Eastern Baptist or a Free Will Baptist. It just is an articular, present, active participle. John the baptizing one. Now, there wasn't a lot of baptisms in uh, Judaism. Uh, you had proselyte baptism, and that was about it. Now, you had mikvahs or baths at the temple uh, where people, before they'd enter into the temple precincts, would, would wash themselves. And that was sometimes called... A baptizo, but it was not a technical baptism. But yeah, this isn't John the Baptist like he's a Southern Baptist. It's John the baptizing Jew, and uh, he says, uh, "What what are you identified with? Uh, what were you listening to? What did you hear about that brought you to faith in the Messiah?" And he said, "John's bapt- baptism. John uh, the baptizing Jew is the guy we know about." Now, does that sound familiar? Go back to uh, verse 24 of chapter 18 which for me, the way my Bible's laid out, is on the same page, so it's easy to get there from chapter 19, verses 2 and 3. Go back to chapter 18, verse 24. So we're we're in Ephesus six months prior to what we're reading about chapter 19. Now there was a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian. He'd been born in Africa, northern Africa, in the city of Alexandria. An eloquent man, he came to Ephesus. He was mighty in the Old Testament scriptures. This man had been instructed by John's baptism, as it were, in the way of the Lord, the glide path to Jesus, very fervent in spirit. Uh, and he was speaking and teaching accurately based on the Old Testament, the things concerning Jesus, but he only knew about the first phase of the ministry of John. He didn't know Jesus personally by name or the details. And this guy with that information, which is great, except it's, 20 years after the fact. This guy is an Apollos, and this group we're talking about, chapter 19, are Old Testament believers living in the New Testament era. Look at verse 26. So Apollos goes into the synagogue, and he's got good news. The Messiah is coming, and I can tell you in great detail about all he's going to be and do, but he doesn't know his name or the specifics, and he's unaware of the fact he doesn't know the specifics. But when Priscilla and Aquila, Paul's friends who are there in Ephesus, heard him speak an Old Testament gospel about a promised Messiah, they took him aside privately and explained the way of God to him more accurately. That's the same kind of thing we have here. And I think Luke is not inventing this story at all, but he brings these stories up just to let you know that we've got to have a focused faith and identification with Jesus 
uh, if we're going to have an impact in the world on this side of the cross. So, hey, uh, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Because since the events of Acts 2, believers receive the Holy Spirit the moment they trust in Jesus Christ. It comes with the deal. Uh, I think sometimes since, hey, Brandon, we're 2,000 years after these events, so it's really easy for us to see the distinction in a way. This is uh, the life and death of Christ, and this is the Old Testament era, and over here's the New Testament era. These folks are living right here, right, right on the cusp of the life of Christ and the changeover from thousands of years of Old Testament uh, spirituality. We're living here 2,000 years later, so we've had plenty of time historically to kind of figure out the distinction between Old Testament and New Testament, but it took a little while. For the early church, including the apostles, to totally understand what had gone on. We had a massive paradigm change in the plan of God after the Holy Spirit descends in Acts 2, uh, because that moved us from Old Testament to New Testament. It moved us from a promised Savior to the provided Savior being the object of saving faith, from a message that the Messiah is coming to a message saying it's finished. He's finished the work of redemption. Everything needed to get Glenda uh, Hedrick to heaven, Jesus has already done for you, and he's coming back for you. Uh, from spirituality with training wheels, the Old Testament law, to spirituality with no training wheels. So it's easy for us to see that, but we sometimes forget it. it took a couple of decades for the church to kind of sort it all out. And in fact, the apostles weren't crystal clear about it until Acts 15. What happened in Acts 15? We had the big meeting, the Jerusalem Council, where they all got together, there was actually controversy after Paul's first missionary journey because he's just telling Gentiles to believe and be saved. And kind of the assumption had been, hey, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Jews can believe and be saved in the Messiah, but Gentiles need to pre-qualify by becoming converts to Judaism, and then they can embrace the Jewish Messiah and be saved. And Paul's saying, no, we're not saying Christianity is a sect, S-E-C-T, of, of uh, Christianity is a sect of Judaism. We're saying it's the fulfillment of Judaism. And the Jewish Messiah is the Savior of the world. So uh, if it took the apostles about 20 years, the fact that these people, Apollos and now this group that he's talking to in Ephesus, or a couple years after that, shouldn't be totally surprising. But it is kind of a unique deal. Now, go uh, go uh, advance the slide there for me, David. Uh, yeah, let's bump through there. Uh, Old Testament believers were saved through faith in a promised Savior. Uh, what we've got here... We've got Old Testament believers in Apollos and now this little group he's talking to in Ephesus who are living in the New Testament era and they don't know it. Now, you might say, how is that possible? Well, I tried to explain it, but let me give you an analogy. Analogy means overlapping situation. That kind of deal, which in fact did happen, is analogous to something else that happened. Okay. Do you realize there were, there were more than one there were old, there were some World War II Japanese soldiers who were living long after the war was over and on isolated islands in the Pacific who didn't know the war was over. They were still prosecuting the war to the extent they could. It is possible because we've got, uh, in fact, yeah, we'll just start there. Uh, this guy's name is Hiro Onoda. This guy there in the front, uh, remained deep in the jungle in an isolated island in the Philippines where he had been sent as an intelligence officer from 1944 is when he was sent with orders. The war ends in 45, and then 30 years after he was sent to that island, he still thought 
we were at war, Japanese against the United States. Uh, so he was still picking off civilians and hiding in the jungle, and he didn't know that World War II had ended. That's exactly analogous to Apollos and the people we're talking about here. They're living on this side of the cross, but they don't know about Jesus and the cross. They know what the Old Testament told uh, the people of God, the nation of Israel, to get out to the world that the Messiah was coming. They knew he was coming, but they're living after he'd come. They didn't know it. Next uh, yeah, caption there. Now watch this. They dry, Once they figure it out, once the Philippine government and probably the United States government found out there's somebody in there who apparently thought he was still at war against uh, the, the Allies and he was picking off people in a couple of years as a sniper, they, they sent leaflets and they sent all kinds of stuff to him and he didn't believe it. He was finally persuaded to emerge and continue fighting the war until after, uh, emerge after his aging former commanding officer. Now, I kind of, I don't really like that caption. I'm giving you a caption from a website because his former aging commanding officer looks a lot like me. It's the guy in the suit with the glasses on. And, you know, if when I looked at that, I said, that looks like me and I'm not even Japanese. So, I kind of resent, uh, but I'm just, I'm just the agent of bad news here. I'm just telling you what it says, you know. Uh, according to the website, which was the nationalenquirer.com, now it's a different website. I think it was legit. The guy in the middle, the Japanese soldier, who's thought he'd been at war for 30 years, and he wasn't. The war was over in 45. Uh, finally persuaded to emerge after his aging former commanding officer, who's now a happy civilian, was flown in to see him. Stop. You know, it's over. Next slide. So you're welcome. Yeah, I did a lot of work. You know, I worked almost as hard on that as that on my PowerPoint. It's not working. Just to show you how, how much work you put in. But I thought that was pretty interesting. So let's look at verse 4. Paul's going to straighten them out. He's going to help them go from fuzzy to focus in their saving faith. He said, hey, that's great, but here's the deal. John baptized with the baptism of repentance. And that's a particular word that means changing your mind about something. Telling people to believe phase two of his ministry. Phase one was Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming. Messiah walks up to him, is baptized him, baptized by him, is tempted, comes back to him, and from that point we go to phase two. Jesus is the Messiah who's coming. He's the guy. He's the Lamb of God. That's it. He's it. Believe in him. So John baptized with the baptism of repentance. You heard about phase one of that. But ultimately, he told people specifically to believe in him who is coming after him. That is Jesus, right? Jesus of Nazareth, no doubt about it. So look at verse 5. We, we see these folks happily, actively, immediately identify with Christ in the body of Christ. This is the only time in Scripture that I know of that anybody gets rebaptized. Um, you know, I know some denominations will say, hey, you may have come to faith and been baptized when you were in a different situation, but if you want to join our group, you've got to be rebaptized. As far as I'm concerned, they've got a right to make that their rules. I think that's stricter than Scripture, in my opinion. You know, um, I don't think the Bible says every time you change denominations, you've got to get rebaptized, but that's just me. But th- these people do get rebaptized. So anybody who's trying to tell you when you join our group, you've got to get rebaptized because Tanglewoods didn't count or whatever. Um, they're going to probably cite this passage, but this is an extremely unique situation where you've got Old Testament believers 20 years after the fact being filled in, and they want to be identified with the body of Christ. So when they heard this specific information about Jesus, they were baptized in the name because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus. 
They actively embraced faith in him. And they moved from being the status of an Old Testament believer to a New Testament believer. Now notice, verse 4, verse four is very, very important from the standpoint of what I want to say for the next couple of minutes. I've said it before, I'm going to say it again today. Saving repentance isn't a certain emotional reaction to your sinfulness or the fact that if you're not saved, you're going to go to hell, which is true. You're extremely sinful before you get saved by nature and by choices. And if you don't get saved, you are going to go to hell. That is true. And when you hear about that, that, that can make you very sad. And when I heard about that as a nine-year-old, I was extremely sad. I mean, I'm as, as sad as I've ever been in my whole life. But I think we tend to think that repentance is a level of sadness. Uh, that's contrition. I don't doubt anybody who trusts Christ has a certain amount of contrition. I know they're convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment before they believe. That happens every time. But saving repentance isn't feeling sorry. It's changing your mind about your sin. You got it. It's your fault. Yourself, you cannot fix it. And your Savior, Jesus Christ, is the only one who can. That's saving repentance. And in verse uh, 4, as Paul talks about John's Baptist, John the Baptist's ministry, he's clearly equating saving repentance with saving faith. He's saying, think about it. John baptized or preached a baptism of repentance. Um, metanoia is the noun. Metanoia is the verb. The same thing means to change your mind. Meta means to change. Noia means to think. Change your thinking. He said, change your mind about your sin. You got it yourself. You can't fix it by being a good observant Jew. And your Savior, he's the only one who can. Uh, he baptized or did a baptism of repentance, telling the people to what? Well, he told them to repent. But you could also say he told them to believe because it's the same thing. Saving repentance is of the very essence of saving faith. They're not two separate steps. They're not two different things. They're the same thing. They're the exact same thing. They're two ways of saying the same thing. John baptized with baptism of repentance. See, that's in yellow. Metanoia, change your mind. Telling them to believe. Pistuo, active, receptive, trust in Jesus. You can't actively, receptively trust in Jesus Christ without changing your mind about your sin, your guilt. You're guilty. You can't uh, write that off anymore. Blame it on your mom or your pastor or the president or whoever you want to blame it on. Uh, yourself, you've got to stop thinking you can earn your own salvation by being a good person because that's fast track to hell. And your Savior, he's the only one who can't. Next slide, David. So repentance kind of parallels that. Now, watch this. Do it again. Thank you. Um, it's almost like Luke, who's the human author of Acts, is going out of his way, Brandon, to make it impossible for you to miss this. That repentance, in the sense of changing your mind about your sin, yourself, and your Savior, is identical with faith. Let me show you. Uh, Make that go away. Make make 2.44 go away. Yeah. Acts 2.38. Peter in Jerusalem says, Repent. And that's the verb. There's imperative, metanoia. For the forgiveness of your sins. A couple of verses later. Now let's look at it. Luke, who's writing about the people who heard Peter say that, describes those who responded to the call to repent. He says, All those who had heard Peter say to repent, they all believed. They all believed in Jesus. You can't believe in Jesus salvifically and not repent. Next one. It, that's all you've got. Really, I think if you had 19.4, that's all you need. But just look at the evidence compound. This is Peter again in Jerusalem, a little later. Therefore, Peter says, in the streets of Jerusalem, not far from the empty tomb, 
That's pretty neat. You know, if the tomb was still full, they could just say, hey, why are you preaching this guy? He's, he's, he's dead over here. You know? Peter says, therefore, repent. Change your mind about your sin. You got it. Yourself, you can't fix it. Your Savior, he's the only one who can. So your sins will be wiped away. And then Luke says, those who heard the message, and what was the message? What did he just tell them to do? Yeah, he told them to repent. How did Luke report what happened? The ones who repented, and what did he say? He didn't say they repented and believed. He says they believed. It's the same thing. Saving repentance is of the very essence of uh, saving faith. If it's got to be a certain emotional level, then how can you be sure you weren't you were sorry enough when you believe? You can't. You don't know that. That's not the way it works. That, keep going. Uh, this is Peter again. Uh, we're going to move from Peter in a minute, but Peter says everyone who believes, even Gentiles, he's talking to Gentiles there, in him receives what? That's good. You want that? Look at the next chapter when he's being debriefed. Uh, as he inter- Peter says that to Gentiles and some of the more legalistic Jewish brothers say, you can't just tell them to believe. They got to become Jews first. And Peter says, no, that's not what happened. And his his questioners, Peter's questioners, say, oh wow, what do you know? God has granted the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Those who believe, by definition, have changed their mind about their sin, their self, and their Savior. Okay, next one. Now, we got Paul. He says, all men everywhere should repent. And all people, it's male and female, should repent. Change your mind. And look what happens a couple of verses later. Some men who heard him say, you should repent, what'd they do? Saving repentance is of the very essence of saving faith. They're not two different things. They're not even two sides of the same coin. They're exactly the same thing. Uh, next. Yeah, and to me, this is the Rosetta Stone of the whole thing. Uh, Jesus, uh, Paul's saying, look, uh, you heard phase one of John's ministry, but think about it. His overall ministry was like this. Yeah, he preached a baptism to signify repentance, changing your mind that you need a Savior But he went beyond that because he said specifically the Savior was Jesus. And he told people to believe. He told them to repent, told them to believe. Same thing, not different things. Next one. Uh, Yeah, just show that, show the rest of that uh, slide, yeah. Let's analyze this thing. Baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. Now that's a whole other issue because some people read that and they think you've got to be baptized to have your sins forgiven. Is that what it looks like to you? It does to a lot of people, and it almost sounds like that. But when you analyze what's going on here, forgiveness of sins is not connected to baptism. It's connected to repentance. Those who change their mind about themselves, their sin, I got it. I'm estranged from God. It's my fault. I can't fix it, but Jesus can, and I want him to. That's saving faith. They receive forgiveness of sins. And then having received forgiveness of sins, what should believers do? Identify with Christ in his church. And a key way you do that is water baptism. I wear this ring. Proud, happy husband of Debbie Walker McCoy. Uh, and, you know, she had to have, I'm her third husband. She told me not to tell you this, but I'm her third husband. She got married at 12. She lived in Arkansas and 17. Then at age 20, you know, right across the English, we sat right across from each other in English class. Uh, I did a book report for her on the fly once, you know, an oral book report, and the rest is history. And took her to the golf course. She couldn't make contact, but I fell in love with her anyway. It was a strange thing. But I wear this as a symbol, you know, but if I put this over here or Solomon found it, picked it up because he likes my taste in wedding rings and he put it on, you wouldn't be married to me. Uh, you can do that nowadays in this country uh, or to uh, 
my wife or anybody else. It's a symbol. Water baptism is a symbol. This is John's symbol, but it's all about changing your mind and trusting in the Savior. The guys we're talking about here had believed in the promised Savior. That's all John knew about at the time. Later, he's going to get very specific about Jesus. Okay, next slide. So here's the thing. Saving repentance, at least according to Luke, who I think is a fairly good source, you know, Paul, Peter, people like that, is more about volition than emotion and is of the very essence of saving faith. You can't believe in Christ without uh, changing your mind. Next. Yeah, so what are we changing our mind about in saving repentance? I hope this thing's insured, James. I've stepped on it twice. But I don't, I just, I've just kind of grazed it. I'm having a bad day with technology. Okay, no more technology. Next week, no air conditioning, low lights, nothing. We're going to do it the way Jesus did it. We're going to be in a campfire out in the woods somewhere. You know, Don't have to worry about the PowerPoint. Uh, saving repentance is about changing your mind about your sin, yourself, and your Savior. The Holy Spirit does that in us. I understand that. But this is what, what it looks like. And you can't trust Christ without doing that. So they're not different things. They're the same thing. Go to the next one. Now, I, I got a fly in the ointment, however. Since we're, since we're here, we've already looked at that. And, and tell me that's not what it means. I'm sorry. There's no way you can get around that. And we talked about that's not saying the baptism forgives, but the repentance forgives. But how about this one? Hit the, yeah. When the Lord appears on the scene, Following up John the Baptist saying this, he says, repent and believe the gospel. Now, we see and in English as a plus sign. Homer and Pam is two people, not one person, right? Uh, milk and honey is a plus sign. Usually in English we use and as a plus sign. But in all languages, and New Testament Greek is no exception, you have something called an ascensive chi, an ascensive and, where the and isn't a plus sign, it's a what? Equals more. Repent. What do you mean? Believe the gospel. Believe the good news about who I am. Uh, now, how does that work? Next slide. Now, we're going to need... Next slide, please. Yeah. We're going to need some volunteers. And I know Russell's always ready to volunteer, so Russell, come up here. In fact, yeah, don't even come up here. I want you to go over and stand by Ron. Stand by Ron. Okay? Now, let's get Elliot, one of the world's greatest archers, come up here. Amber, I know you've got no fear. Get up here. Okay? Okay, now we gotta understand how this is gonna work. Okay, hey, congrats, man, going to nationals. He's going to nationals for archery. Let's hear it. And he was nothing until I motivated him spiritually. I mean, I'm so glad he found me. Okay, that's Russell Ponder. I'm Brad McCoy. Okay, you're gonna play the part of there. When I point to you, I want you to say there. Go over and stand by. Russell, my man. He's playing the part of, okay, this is Amber. She's also a college student, a mathetes in that sense, as well as a disciple of Jesus Christ. You're going to play the part of here, H-E-R-E, okay? Now, very invisible, but when I point to you, you're going to say here. a little louder. Here. Okay, now my finger curves, which is one reason I was a great baseball pitcher. <laughs> I could put one whale of a curve on a ball. But when I point to people, I can point at you and it looks like I'm pointing at Pam. You know, I was born like this. I mean, really, is this bizarre? I'm not making it up. And this eye doesn't work either, but you don't know about that. Okay, so you're here, you're there. Am I right? Okay. Now, if I want my friend Russell to come over here so we can have a nice conversation. There's at least three different ways I could say that. I could say, 
Russell, come over. You know what? I, I did it wrong. That <laughs> <laughs> you were perfect. I'm having a bad day. The PowerPoint is my fault. That's not where I'm... Okay, let's try it again. If I want my good friend Russell come over, uh, come over here, I can say, Russell, come over here. Come on over, Russell. You do that so well. We we practiced this yesterday. Nice job. Nice job. Okay. Is, did that work? I got him to come from here to there by saying that. Okay, go back to your position, please. Okay. He's going to be worn out by the time we finish. We're going to do it like three times. So. Okay. So that's one way. Another way I could say exactly the same thing is, Russell, don't stay over. Nice. You actually, you did that better that time than the first time, and I didn't think that was possible. That was awesome, man. Good job. Now go back one more time. <laughs> so, you know, coming over here is like saying believe. Don't stay over there is like saying repent, right? Or I could say, Russell, you know, I want Russell over here. He's my man. He's my main man. And you know, he's like my favorite person in TBF. <laughs> Except for you. You're my number one. But, uh, I could say, Russell, don't stay over Come over here. I could say the same thing three different ways with the exact same meaning. Am I right? Yes, Pastor Brad, you are right. Good job. Okay. Thank you. Everybody sit down. That's the way these terms work, okay? Now, you know, it's just like being married. As you are married for a while, you figure out what your wife really means by the way she says things in context. That's the way you got to read the Bible. you got to be a good reader and understand the Bible. Uh Come over here is analogous to believe in the gospel, believe in Jesus Christ. Don't stay over there is like saying repent. Change your mind about your sin, yourself, and the Savior, so you'll believe. Or you can say both together. Repent and believe the gospel. Don't stay over there, come over here. Not different stuff, it's the same stuff. And so don't be confused about that. It's not that that difficult. Okay, next slide. So, uh, we saw them get water baptized next week, Lord willing. We're going to baptize... Uh, Two uh, new believers, young believers, Hannah Brew and Bailey Walls, and maybe you. Uh, water baptism doesn't wash away your sins, but it is a, a biblical way for believers to identify publicly with the body of Christ and proclaim their faith in Christ. So if you're a believer and for whatever reasons haven't been water baptized, we'd be glad to do that. Uh, just contact me this week. We'll walk you through the uh, kind of some information about that, and we'll go from there. Uh, so we look forward to that. But uh, don't don't buy the idea that some groups teach that water baptism saves you, keeps you saved, or you got to have a certain mode. I personally believe in baptism by immersion, and I think it pictures yeah, the uh, believer identifying with Christ on the cross, being buried and rising again. Some groups pour and sprinkle. There are historical reasons for that. I respectively, respectfully disagree, but... Uh, I, ta- I got a feeling John Calvin and Martin Luther have done a lot more for the Christian church than I ever will, and they, they, they sprinkle babies, okay, as a sign of the covenant. So and there are theological reasons you can do it other ways, but that's the way, the way I do it. And i got to kind of live out my convictions, and I respect people have different opinions than, than me, especially when they're much more spiritual than I'll ever be. Anyway, so that's probably a good thing to do. But let's take this to heart. Next slide, please. Uh, you know what, as long as we're talking about baptism, yeah, uh, let me just say this. In addition to saying that uh, in those passages we looked at, 
uh, the forgiveness of sins wasn't connected with baptism. It was connected with repentance, you know, which is faith. Uh, it's also true that if water baptism is necessary for salvation, Jesus never baptized, never saved anybody because it's interesting. In a little aside, Zane, in John 4, the Gospel of John 4, it mentions that Jesus was baptizing more people than John the Baptist once we got to phase two of John the Baptist's ministry. But then John says, but you know, technically Jesus didn't physically baptize anybody, his disciples did. Okay? So if you have to be baptized to be saved, you think Jesus would baptize as many as possible as opposed to not baptizing anybody. And then, uh, go back to that. And then also, and, uh, think about this. When, when Paul, 1 Corinthians 15 is where the gospel is described, but that quote from uh, Paul is actually from 1 Corinthians 1. And at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, you know what? You guys really blow my mind because you've got these in-house divisions and intramural spats between yourselves and the church, and I hate it, especially when some of you are saying that you're associated with me, I'm your favorite preacher, and that makes you more spiritual, or you're saying I baptize you, so you're more spiritual than people who were baptized by Peter or Paulus. And so Paul says, you know what? Christ didn't send me to baptize. He didn't send me to give out wedding rings. He sent me to preach the gospel so people could believe and be saved. And then, of course, I want them to be baptized. I don't care who baptizes them, me, Apollos, Peter, or whomever. But there's no way Paul could say that or would say that if baptism was essential to salvation. You follow my reasoning there, uh, Brandon? If you have to believe and be baptized a certain way or by a certain group, Paul wouldn't say, hey, God, God didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel. I mean, I don't care about baptism. That's what he's saying in that context. And he wouldn't say that if you have to be baptized to be saved. That's kind of a good one to know. So let's finish this way. Take this to heart. Faith is a rational act, but it's not meritorious. It's active, receptive trust. And it's only as good as its object. It involves changing your mind about your your sin. You got it. We all and yes, that's hate speech nowadays. Saying somebody's sinful, you know, uh, good night. You know, how dare you? You know, judge, aren't you, supposed, aren't you supposed to avoid judging if you're Christian? Uh, yeah, you're supposed to judge, avoid judging hypocritically or hypercritically. In context, that's what Jesus is talking about. But he's not saying you can't draw any moral lines against rape and incest and murder and things like that. Of course you've got to draw lines about those. Those things are wrong and sinful. They're horrible. Uh, so, of course, you're changing your mind about these things. But saving faith is... Uh, it's rational, it's not meritorious, and it's only as good as its object. Now, what does that mean? You know, if uh, if uh, Solomon had built a little balsa wood, little uh, faux, faux, fake a piano bench, and I stepped on it, I, I'd break through it instantly. Even if I believed it would hold me up, it, it wouldn't hold me up. But I've stepped on one of those chairs before. But the decorating committee got very upset with me because I put a big footprint. No, I'm kidding. They didn't get mad, but... Uh, let's see if they get mad this time. Okay, I, I believe this chair can hold me up. You know what? It holds me up. Okay, it, it's not holding me up because of my faith, but my faith allowed me to put my weight on it. Okay, I'm trusting in the in the in the chair. Saving faith is in Jesus Christ. Now, what's so important about Jesus Christ? Well, he's just the Son of God who took on humanity without ceasing to be deity, who lived a perfect, righteous life, who died and paid for every single thing that could keep you out of heaven on the cross and rose again from the dead, and claims to be the issuer and issuer of eternal life. That's all he is. Other than that, no big deal. Okay? So how dare you make him so important? How could we not make him important? The object of saving faith is the person of Jesus Christ. So 
if you've not trusted him, if you've had a fuzzy faith, you know, I can remember, I'm so old, I remember when the public service announcements on network TV were things like, attend the church of your choice. Can you imagine if NBC, ABC, CBS, CNN, Fox News had a commercial saying, attend the church of your choice? There would be demonstrations. How dare you tell us to attend a church? You know, what kind of self-righteous 18th century bigot are you? You know, uh, but I could, I'm so old. They actually, the public service announcements, they were doing this for free on NBC. Attend the church of your choice, you know. Uh, and I think we had a lot of people probably in that era that were real fuzzy about their faith. They thought Jesus was a nice guy and going to church was a good thing and they liked the dinners and they liked the softball team and, and they would happy to listen to the preacher talk, but they don't listen, most people don't listen to preachers anyway. And I know you guys only have about 40 minutes in you, so we're almost at the breaking point. Uh, but we trained you, okay? Uh, so I think there was a lot of fuzzy faith. Let's, let's go back to where we were, Doug. Uh, we're just gonna stop on that one. Uh, so it's possible we could have somebody here who's just got fuzzy faith. So you, Jesus is a nice guy, but Buddha and Muhammad probably are too. And uh, Brad's not too dangerous, and they like Homer and Pam, and they like Ron, so they hang around with with us. You know, we sing funny songs, and they don't no, they don't notice the the lyrics. So it doesn't matter. Uh, you could be in that boat here. You know, coming to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going into a, a garage makes you a a car or an SUV. Uh, you could go to a boat storage locker, doesn't make you a boat, you know. So going to church doesn't save you, but it's a great thing for seekers of truth to do. It's a great thing for believers to do, right? So if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, today can be the day of salvation. Uh, the Bible says all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and it's our fault, Okay. I know people are complicated and we've all got kind of different things that cause us to be the way we are, but ultimately we make our own choices uh, and we've all chosen to be selfish, sinful, and stupid. And at our worst, we break not just God's standards, we break our own standards. We've all done it. So the Bible says we've all sinned, come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Death in the Bible is an extinction, it's separation. And the wages of sin is a eternal spiritual separation from God. Because of your sin. That's the, that's the deal. That's the bad news. The good news of the gospel responds to that black background and says, you know what? Where sin did abound, grace does more abound. God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in our place to pay for our sin debt that whosoever believeth in him. You gotta repent to be saved. You gotta change your mind about your sin. You got it. Yourself, you can't fix it by being a nicer, more religious person. And your Savior, he's the only one who can because he died for you as your substitute, rose again, and through active receptive trust, you receive that gift. I love the examples of the leper who comes to Jesus for physical healing, but he expresses perfect faith. He says, Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And what does Jesus say? Of course I'm willing. Be cleansed. What is that? That's active receptive trust. I'm a leper. I can't fix it. You can. I want you to. Jesus responds to active receptive trust. The uh, uh, centurion in Matthew 8 who sends uh, uh, a messenger to Jesus and says, Hey, my servant's about to die. i got a problem. I can't fix it. I want you to. Uh, and you don't even have to come. Just say the word and he'll be saved. i got a problem. My favorite servant who's probably like his brother, kid brother, is dying and we can't fix it. 
I want you to. Will you please fix it? And Jesus not only fixes it, but he says, you know what? That's amazing. He's a Gentile. I've not seen faith like that anywhere in Israel. That's active, receptive trust. So nobody can do that for you. Your mommy can't do that for you. Your dad, your grandparents, your pastor. you got to do that yourself. Now, after a, a short a fellowship break, about 15 minutes, James is going to lead us in a, a song. Then we're going to celebrate Lord's Supper. Then we'll conclude with a song, and we'll be done with our morning services. But realize um, the Lord's Supper is the highest form of New Testament worship, but it's for believers only. Now, we can't x-ray your heart, and if you're here and just want to go through the motions, you can do that. That's pretty serious stuff. I wouldn't play myself with that. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, first day, last day at TBF, uh, remember that a couple of weeks ago on Wednesday night, we totally lost the PowerPoint, and then when it was over, Donna, at the end, I said, hey, anybody have any questions? And remember, Donna says, you're going to have PowerPoint next week, right? I mean, so, well, we're going to try, you know, so... Um, so this could be the last day because the PowerPoint didn't work. But, um, yeah, if you're a believer in Christ, we want you to stay and take Lord's Supper because uh, there are some important uh, things that happen in and through the Lord's Supper for you. But uh, if you're not a believer, we just, uh, if you want to stay, you can. But we're going to politely ask you not to partake. The kids who come in have been vetted by their parents, you know. If they profess faith in Christ, that's the parents' call. They know them better than we do. Then they're certainly uh, encouraged to take it. If they're not, haven't done that yet, they can still observe. It doesn't hurt them to watch, watch us do it, right? And that gives mom and dad or Pastor Brad a chance to talk to them about it, okay? So that's what we're going to do today. And I hope, uh, hope we understand saving faith a little bit more crisply, clearly, okay? Uh, Ron, dismiss us in prayer, would you?